Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm really excited today to be talking about Dolby Vision. Uh, we've been talking for the past several weeks with some of the creators of some of your favorite episodic content in terms of sound design and mixing and Dolby Atmos. But Dolby's not just about sound. As many of you know, uh, we also are in the imaging world with Dolby Vision, which is our flavor of HDR. So I'm really uh, pleased, like I said, to be here today with some of the folks who have been bringing Dolby Vision content to you, both in the theaters and on streaming platforms and broadcast for home. So at this point, I'd like to introduce Tom Graham, uh, who is uh, our head of Dolby Vision enablement and uh, and who is kind of a, a, a one of the people who has really been doing a lot of industry outreach around Dolby Vision and, uh, and, and just has a, a great expertise in the subject matter. So Tom and the entire team, welcome to the show. I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say about Dolby Vision today. Cool. Glenn, super glad to be here. This is really exciting and uh, kind of the inaugural kickoff to talk to some video dudes, right? That's right. And uh, we're going to we're going to call this, I guess, conversations with colorists. You know, we want to we want to have really some longer, open, in-depth conversations that really aren't limited by usual sort of short sound bites or timer format. And uh, we want to listen to colorists on their experiences creating uh, and storytelling in this new HDR and wide color gamut format, um, as well as really their thoughts on utilizing the Dolby Vision tools and workflows. We'll, as you mentioned, we'll be covering both cinema and home slash mobile uh, tools, workflows, deliverables. You know, we hope that the series is kind of entertaining, educational. We want to share useful knowledge um, that you know, other colorists or producers or showrunners or filmmakers who have yet to embark on this exciting journey um, can find useful. You know, it's, um, as you mentioned, you know, being in the lockdown and sort of streaming all this amazing content, it's an incredibly exciting time in our industry with so many outlets of great content and the new possibilities of immersive storytelling, long format, short format, documentary. And so, you know, with all that said, we want to get started sort of where all good stories start at the beginning, of course. And uh, we wanted to do a little background on Dolby's path to really pioneer and birth HDR and PQ perceptual quantization into the world. Um, and ultimately what led to Dolby Vision as a format, as an ecosystem. And to do that, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time and super excited that this format gives us the chance to do it is we're going to meet with three colorists who work at Dolby um, and they are part of the ongoing research team and the innovation process that has really produced this amazing ecosystem. Um, they were there really from the beginning. Um, they also have created many of the Dolby Vision grades for big name studio titles and really interesting research projects. Um, so they have some fantastic real world experience and knowledge to share. Um, so, you know, we, we I think that's super exciting and hopefully useful for you. Um, so if you could, why don't I have you guys quickly introduce yourself and maybe share a title or two that you really enjoyed working on uh, to create, you know, the HDR version of that of that TV show or, or picture. So uh, take it away, Rick. Uh, hi, I'm Rick Taylor, uh, senior colorist at uh, Dolby for research. Um, we did uh, uh, a lot of research early on uh, to 
create HDR and, and um, Dolby Vision. And uh, some of the, I mean, we did um, all together in the first two years of actually turning out a uh, product, we did about 100 titles. Um, and uh, I, it's hard to pick one, but I guess uh, one that I took from, uh, from uh, theater all the way through, maybe a couple of them, uh, one would be Atomic Blonde which uh, uh, sat with the uh, director uh, at the Vine Theater and, and uh, graded that, and, and uh, he loved it. And, and then uh, we made it for Dolby Vision home distribution. And uh, I can just watch that movie anytime. It's uh, a lot of fun anyway. Yeah, and it's but, like... Uh, at Dolby Vision, it looks really great. Yeah, it's got such a beautiful color palette and use of color that it's one of my favorites, too. So, all right. Thanks, Rick. Let's uh, go over to Greg Hamlin. Yeah, hi, I'm Greg Hamlin. I've been at Dolby now for almost six years, and uh, I had worked with Rick at a couple of places in town in the past, and he came to be at the point where they were going to start the race to get 100 titles done, and uh, and I came aboard to, to help make that happen. And... Uh, it was a lot of fun doing the titles for uh, the studios as they came aboard uh, with Dolby Vision. Uh, probably one of the most exciting ones that I worked on was uh, Platoon, uh, because in that case I really found uh, that in PQ and P3 color space we were able to enhance it and get a wider range of hues for the greens and the jungle and uh, the war footage of Vietnam and so forth. And uh, it was a bit of a departure from the previously done great and uh, we kind of approached Oliver Stone to tell him what we thought we could do and what might be available in PQ and P3 and he was pretty excited about it when he saw it and uh, so it was a lot of fun to do that work with him on that. Yeah having seen some of your grade on that I would I would say too the uh, really the night footage with some of the explosions and things the battle scenes at night were just super intense so I, I loved it thank you and Shane over to you. Hi, I'm Shane Ruggiero. I've been with Dolby since uh, about 2011, um, and I'm a colorist, uh, producer type person, and uh, I think I'll stay away from the, the titles and, and move towards research, which I really focus on. Um, so latest thing that I've done was uh, the Spears and Munsell uh, benchmark DVD disc that really pushes the gamut, uh, Rec 2020. Also, um, you know, your highest APL and, and making images that really made you feel like you're standing there uh, to really push um, televisions to the the best that they can potentially show and, and show where they stop. Um, and, and that was kind of a fun thing. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I do. <laughs> that's great. Awesome. And uh, maybe you guys could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, my experience of joining Dolby and seeing Dolby Vision was just, probably like you, was just so impactful that... Um, I just knew this is what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be and, and, you know, talk about and evangelize it. So really maybe you guys could just share your experiences of maybe the first time you saw HDR and, and how it involved uh, Dolby or sort of bringing it to life, birthing HDR. I'll, I'll jump in. I don't mind that. I, I love telling this story from my side. Um, when I first got, to Dolby and, and asked to come over and start doing some HDR content. You know, they were working on Pulsar. They had a couple other prototype monitors. 
But they had this one called the P6 Mono, which was uh, a projector shooting down onto an LCD panel, and it was, you know, pushing 20,000 nits. And um, I remember sitting in front of it, looking at the imagery, and just thinking to myself, I can touch that. I, I can reach through and touch that. It, it felt so real. And I'd only plan on being here a year. Uh, that's what I promised the guy who hired me. <laughs> I said, I'll give you a year and then I'm going to go out in the world and do this Dolby Vision stuff. Right. And, uh, that was, that was nine years ago. Uh, <laughs> Rick, how about you? Uh, well, I came in in 2012 and, and, um, we, uh, we got a Pulsar, one of the original five. And, um, originally, uh, people were trying to, uh, do HDR video in gamma space and gamma is limited. And, and one of the things that, you know, you have to do is try and stretch it and it create a lot of noise. And so we had, we had guys working on noise reduction, uh, for this. And, and, um, I started, uh, dealing with, uh, the images in log space. And then, um, one day, uh, I had, uh, a guy named John McElvain, who's one of our physicists, right? Real smart guy came in and he put, um, uh, PQ, which was called ADM at the time on, uh, on the pulsar. And I was able to start, uh, grading images, uh, with log tools in PQ and it just clicked. It was, mm. it was the most amazing image I had ever seen. And so, uh, we rapidly started digging things out of the, out of the archives, um, uh, old, uh, D 21 projects that uh, everyone thought was too, were too noisy to, uh, use. And of course, famous fantasy flights, uh, which bill, my uh, boss kept telling me, go brighter, go brighter. <laughs> and, and I'm like, are you sure? Yeah. And he was right. Uh, we were able to stretch the boundaries and take uh, images that were shot on Alexa, uh, given all the range that the Alexa would provide, and then put it on this uh, monitor and just make incredible images. So we'll just define two quick things here that we're going to talk a little bit more about, um, PQ and Pulsar. So uh, PQ stands for Perceptual Quantizer, and that was essentially, as Rick mentioned, a logarithmic-style tone curve for luminance, compared to the very linear gamma, which was designed for SDR, for cathode ray tube TV. So so basically, Dolby, one of the ways Dolby helped bring HDR to life was to say, we've, we've got to change the, the way we work with images, and our eyes work logarithmically, so PQ made a lot of sense. Right, Rick? Correct. And, and it's also, um, it's a 10,000-nit container, and uh, there's a definite code value per nit uh, correlation. So, uh, it's, it's an easy thing to keep track of. Uh, it's very exact. Uh, if you're looking at it with your scopes, um, very predictable. Cool. And then Pulsar, we'll talk about more in a minute, but that was the, uh, Shane mentioned the first research monitor that was kind of a hybrid projector, uh, and, and an LCD screen. Uh, Rick, tell us a little bit about Pulsar. What is it? And, it's the it's the mysterious unicorn of the the video industry, right? I think uh, there there are probably only twenty in existence at this moment. It's um, a four thousand nit monitor, uh, 
it's uh, it's got really good blacks, uh, not as good as uh, OLED, but uh, it's um, liquid cooled because it has to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, power drops in the vicinity when you turn it on, so it's uh, you know it's not exactly eco friendly, but uh, uh, it puts out amazing pictures. It's the technology is based on our our PRM. Uh, it's just uh, about three times the the um, number of LEDs. You really couldn't affordably manufacture it to sort of send out in the real world. Uh, it's it's quite a quite a monstrosity with, as you mentioned, four power supplies, liquid cooling, um, weighs four hundred pounds, requires several people to move it. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Pulsar. We can always come back to that, Greg. Tell us um, about your sort of first experience with HDR and how it brought you to Dolby. Well, when I when I first came in to talk with uh, Rick and Bill Royale about doing uh, HDR and Dolby grading, they uh, ran that exact uh, footage that Rick was talking about grading, the uh, Fantasy Flights footage, which probably most people have seen by now. And it's, uh, you know, an aluminum-skinned airplane flying around uh, over the Channel Islands, and there's a low sun in the sky and there's lots of reflections off the water and off the plane. And, uh, and when I first saw it, I was just blown away. I saw it on the Pulsar and, uh, I think some of those highlights do go over 4,000 nits in that clip. And, uh, I felt like I was looking out a window. It didn't look like I was looking at a monitor. Uh, and even though we're still far from hitting the nit level that you see when you're actually out in the world and looking around, uh, Compared to SDR, it just seems so much more realistic, uh, so much more compelling and, uh, and exciting to see. So I couldn't wait. I was just really keen to start playing in that medium and using that uh, palette. Yeah. Shane, you too. I mean, you it's one of those, I've heard you talk about it many times, about how exciting when you saw the, the possibilities that you said, I, I've got to get my hands in this, right? It was. I mean, when you when you start looking at imagery, and the first time I saw HDR, I think it was at 600 nits, and I still was like, oh, this is it. This is all I need. All I need is 600 nits. This is the end-all, be-all. And then, then I saw the Pulsar <laughs> at 4,000 nits, and I'm like, wow, okay, this is... Okay, now I get it. Um, and, and one of the things that I tried to do is, um, is try to put myself into a place of how do I think about this stuff, and how do I look at the imagery and try to place it in my head, because, you know... 15 years prior to that, I had just been working in the 100-nit realm, and it it made me rethink how I thought about just imagery being displayed and, and telling stories, because the, the range brought me closer to things I just had no experience with, except for being outside or being in reality. And um, it it confused me. It excited me. It, it, it drove me to want to know more and understand it, because... I mean, I saw the future there. I knew that was going to be the future. And that's that's why I took the job number one. And it's why I'm still here um, is because it, it is how you can tell a better story or a different story. Let's not call it a better story, a different story in a way that you simply couldn't do before um, and, and approach people and, and craft a reaction from the audience that just simply wasn't possible um, other than being right in front of them in real life. And that's what I find so exciting about this is that you can bring people closer to reality or push them away from reality um, just by using light ratios and bringing them close, which you kind of could do it at 100 nits, 
but nowhere near what you can do at 4,000 or even 10,000 or 20,000 nits. You can really bring people closer and further away, um, which is, again, another storytelling technique. Cool. And, you know, I, I hear this occasionally, not, not so much anymore, but in the beginning, I'm sure you guys sort of heard it all the time, is, I guess, and Shane's already sort of started hitting on it, what does HDR mean to him in storytelling terms and wide color gamut mean to you? But really, why isn't HDR just a gimmick like 3D? You know, like what what's different that, you know, you could tell people, say you're working with a new filmmaker, like what is it that, that they should, ah, this isn't just a gimmick. You know, it's just like 3D. It's going to go away. Rick, you want to go first? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, 3D seems to be artificially immersive, right? Um. It, it is a gimmick and you have to wear glasses and all this kind of stuff. Um, when you get to a dynamic range, your, your real world is filled with a greater dynamic range than, than you'll ever see on a monitor. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but HDR brings you closer to that reality. And uh, I think it's, it's much more immersive than, uh, than any other technique. You add to that, um, uh, Atmos sound and and you've got uh, a complete uh, visual and and you know soundscape and and uh, complete experience. It's great, uh, Greg. What's your thoughts on that topic, or how would you talk to a creative? Well, I think you know in terms of like three D being a gimmicky kind of thing. For, you know, for one thing, as to say, you have to involve glasses, and you know, a lot of people their vision and their eyes are such that they can't actually c3d in that technology um and it's always trying to approximate you know or manipulate depth and a sense of perspective um whereas you know one of the things that fascinated me about hdr is that really what we've done is gotten displays that now are catching up to what we've always been able to capture in our cameras even going back to film and motion picture film we just have never been able to see the dynamic range that our eyes could see and that the cameras and the medium, you know, the digital cameras and film cameras could capture. So um, what it gives you is a closer representation of what we see with our eyes and yet a full range in which we can manipulate that in very creative ways and to exploit shadows and darkness uh, or exploit, you know, highlights and brightness Um, and the same with color saturation and things. So, uh, it's just a big, wider box of tools. Yeah, and Shane, you and I have sort of talked about this before. You you almost get that sense when you look at, say, an image on the Pulsar that there is more depth to the image. I don't want to say that it is 3D, but I've had I've heard customers or people say, is that 3D? Because they're with the extra contrast, tell us more about why we perceive that that depth in the image. Only two of the 14 cues that give you depth have to do with, you know, um, the the space between your eyes and and, and things like that. A lot of the other things that give you the sense of depth are contrast sensitivity, like the bulk of it is contrast sensitivity. And and, and Dolby Vision and HDR has a much wider contrast. Um, And for me, to to jump into the, the, um, the depth cues when you start to start to see ratios and not just uh, light ratios but also the color volume 
So when you get all this color volume and you're able to see, you know, ch slight changes in the color volume, it's like uh, if you draw a circle, for example, and you look on a piece of paper and you draw a circle, okay, you got a circle. Now shade it in. Now you've got a ball, okay, or a sphere. Now, if you imagine coloring that in with a single color crayon, yeah, okay, it takes on more, but now use, you know, 400 crayons and, and get all the detail in. All of a sudden, all those different shades start to come alive, and that's what you're doing with HDR, and, and that's what you're doing as you raise color volume, is you're, you're allowing those other colors and those shades of colors to come in that never were there before. Uh, and you start to perceive depth. Your eyes really start to see that depth, um, and it's... I've had those same questions multiple times. You know, is this 3D? Is this one lenticular lens? You know, it, it's like, no, man, that's just how your eyes, your eyes, your brain starts to interpret. Um, and that's one of the things about this, this gimmick thing. You know, I, I relate it back to Atmos. You know, they put Atmos around you so that when you hear a sound over there, you don't have to turn your head. You know, it's right over there, five feet away from you. You, you know it's coming from that direction. Um, and same thing with, with vision. Um, we're looking back at the, the how the eye works. We're looking back at and connecting it to how the ear works. And we're giving the experience, not just, oh, this is better. No, we're, we're connecting it to how you work. Your PQ curve is based on the Barton curve. And that's basically how your eye sees. You know, one step here, you can't see the difference. Two steps, you can see the difference. And that's the curve that was created. That's the PQ curve. And so that, that aligns exactly into your eye. You know, another thing that we've often done as we demonstrate the pulsar and, you know, showing someone 4,000 nit, you know, HDR image for the first time, um, oftentimes they'll say, is this UHD? Is this 4K? And maybe just explain that conversation that you guys have. Shane, go ahead. Since you're sort of teed up. Yeah, I love that conversation because um, when they come into the, my demo room and I, I put two images up, you know, an SDR, first I say, hey, look how great this SDR image is, you know, and they're like, wow, that looks great, you know, put it up on our PRM monitor and they're, they're loving it. And it's typically the, uh, the, uh, fantasy flights content. And they're like, that's beautiful. That's a, you know, gorgeous image. And then I turn on the pulsar and they're like, wow, okay. And I was like, that looks pretty good, right? And they're, they're they look at the SDR and they're like, what happened? Did you turn it down? It's like, no, 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 no. I said, um, and let's talk about 4K. You know, if you had to, you, you need to be 1.6 screen heights away from 4K. So if you got a 55 inch screen, how close do you have to be to actually see the difference in 4K? I could put a 4K up right where you're looking and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But I tell you what, why don't you walk across the street over there and you tell me which one is different? Okay, you tell me which SDR or HDR image is different. You can tell from across the street, not not 1.6 screen heights away. So it also relates back to the person and how they see and how they relate to reality. People are asking me, why does it look so good? It's like, well, why do we want so much brighter imagery? Well, the answer is because in reality, that's what the, the light ratios are. You're referring to it back here in your head. You're seeing something that you've never seen before, but the relationship is already in your head and you're going, that looks more real. Because you've seen a flower in the sun. You've seen these things and it's bringing you closer. Greg or Rick, you want to jump in on the, you know, I, I guess it's still on the gimmick situation of why HDR makes a bigger impact than UHD, 4K, or now 8K. Well, yeah, I, I would think it is the fact that uh, people can see a huge difference in the image right away. Uh, and then, you know, that greater contrast does give you uh, the impression of a greater resolution. 
So we often, even though we will say to people when they come into the room for a demo that the Pulsar is an HDR monitor, when they see it side by side with the PRM and the same image in SDR, they almost always will ask, now, so that's 4K though on the left, isn't it, on the Pulsar? And you have to say, no, but, you know, we haven't, when we built this, we built it as an HDR monitor. So um, it is just something that can be seen from any distance right away. People get the impact. There's perceptual, it's the perceptual resolution. So I, I ask the, the people when they're doing demos as well as which one has more detail? You know, I ask them that particular, which one has more detail, the SDR or the, the HD, you know, Pulsar? And they look at it and they're obviously the Pulsar. And I said, well, it does it. Does it have more detail? It's both 19, 20, 10, 80. It's both the same starting content. And they think about it. They're like, well, yes and no. And I say, well, you're actually right. It, because we think of detail in terms of pixels. But now there's a perceptual aspect that needs to be taken into account and redefine what detail means. Yeah, I was just going to say, so Rick, really, it's in the world, this sort of leads to my next question, which is why HDR isn't just about brighter images. Why is it really about contrast and, and utilizing that depth in ways with highlight detail, shadow detail? And, you know, how would you talk to someone who says, well, the, the, who 10,000 nits is crazy. Well, I need sunglasses. I mean, that's just insane, right? So how would you have that conversation? Well, I, I've had I've had actual colorists come in and say, oh, this is too bright. Well, demo content is demo content. And we often uh, scare directors and people like that by showing them the demo first. And then <laughs> the, when they come in to see their actual uh, footage, they're, they're like, oh, well, this looks great. Yeah, and and part of that is is trying to say we're not going to break your picture, we're not going to change your picture. We're going to put it in a different space, and you're going to see everything that you recorded. And you can choose not to see that. We can adjust it that way. But um, yeah, it's everything that uh, was captured can be there, and yeah. it depends on how you how you decide to. Uh, use that uh, as to what the final image is going to look like. Greg, what's your stories about you know working on films with the will I need sunglasses? Why why HDR isn't about always about bright bright images? I think the the project that I was involved with that showed that to me most clearly uh, was a picture that uh, Glenn and the Dolby Institute had selected from Sundance to uh, to give them a uh, Dolby Cinema grade, and it was uh, Sounds of Silence. Is that was that the right title? Blake? The sound, yeah, the Sound of Silence. It was a really wonderful little film about a guy who has a very specific quirk in his his hearing, his perception. But part of the grant that we gave them allowed them to finish the film in Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision. And I think for sometimes when we bring those young filmmakers in to sit with you guys. It's a little bit of a scary experience because they don't know exactly kind of what to expect. And and they've been, you, you know, this is a really big deal, too, that we talk about on the sound side. You know, they're, they've been used to looking at their movie a certain way for a very long time. And suddenly they come in and they sit with you and they have a lot of new possibilities. So 
yeah, this was a sound of silence was a picture that was directed by Michael Taberski. And, and I'm curious to hear what, 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 what went down in the room after I left them. <laughs> well, I'll have to, we'll have to look up. I don't remember the name of the uh, colorist that was working on the show, but, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we do the grade for folks that come in like that. And other times um, we'll help them as they do the grade. And we'll sort of give them some tips and pointers on on how to place their image within the HDR. Well, there's a scene in the movie that takes place on the rooftops in the middle of New York City at night in a rainstorm with a power out. During a blackout. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, about a blackout. As, it's about as dark as it could possibly be. Yes. And we have we have two actors standing on the roof and they're looking out and the, and the lights go out on all the buildings. And I teased the colorist because I said, once the lights had gone out, I said, okay, now we've gone from, from 30 nits down. Oh, no, actually it was lower than that. I think we've gone from eight nits down to three. Let's go for two and a half, guys. <laughs> and even though the image you know, had almost no luminance, you could still see detail. You could still make a distinction between the clouds in the background, the dark shadows on the rooftop you know, structures, uh, and you could see the actors' faces. And that was when I began to really sort of evangelize with the idea that HDR is not about brighter. It's about this full range and this contrast and the room to really play with how much detail you want to show. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think <clears throat> that leads me to my sort of my next question. Now that you've sort of seen the possibilities of HDR and Dolby Vision and you've lived enough in that world, what frustrates you most about working in SDR Rec 709? Um, you know, the, the challenges that a colorist has to face on a day-to-day -day basis in SDR. I mean, you have all the dynamic range you want. Like when I, Fantasy Flights is a perfect example. It can be uh, 4,000, 10,000 nits in, uh, in the highlights um, if you do it in HDR. But there, you have to leave something behind. Um, if you want to have the clouds in the same shot as, as the woman in the shadows, you're going to have to do extra work and map the clouds. You're going to have to pull all that back. So it's, it's a lot of extra work and it. You don't always get the, the luminance ratio that you would in real life, obviously, mm -hmm. because you're in a limited range. So all of these, all these things are trade-offs in, in uh, that space. Having watched you guys work, it seems like there's also a battle for color saturation, right? That you have to, how to figure out to place the color versus the, the chroma versus the luminance, right? Sure. And, and when you've got, uh, and if you're working in television, you're in, in Rec 709, which is uh, a more limited space than the cinema space, which is P3. Mm -hmm. But uh, even, even then, um, the color is going to roll off somewhat as, as you reach the peaks. And that's that's the way that system works, and um, you know with the HDR, you're holding on to to that color information up into the highlights. Uh, it it doesn't it doesn't diminish and it doesn't deviate. Shane, what were you going to add? You know when people talk about you know oh they say things like oh I got to wear sunglasses to see that it's so bright and it's like you know what I said I love responding to those people and I, I ask them straight up. 
When you go outside and you've got 20,000 nits bouncing off that wall or bouncing off that and you've got 10,000 nit skin tones and 600 nit shadows, your, your, your eyes are working that stuff out and you're not complaining at that point. When your eyes adapt and you get adjusted to the situation, you're fine. Um, or when you go to a live performance, let's say a live show or a play, and you've got those lights, you know, swinging into your eyes and it becomes part of the experience. Um, you know, you're not complaining at that point. You're, you're, it's part of the experience. It's part of that, uh, authentic interaction with light, uh, that you're having that gives you that feeling and sense. In fact, I was working on a project with Lou Levinson over at Apple. It was the Carrie Underwood and, and, in the background, she had this massive wall of LEDs. I mean, it, it filled the whole, you know, whole back of the stage. And, and there was just monstrous light coming off of those things. And I asked Lou, I said, you know, Lou, before we get going here, I, I, before we get uh, grading, um, you know, he was guiding it and I was uh, pushing the buttons. And um, I asked him, where do you want to feel like you are when you're watching this? Do you want to feel like you're um, you know, in the stands, they're right there standing with the audience, or do you want to feel like you're at home and you're watching it kind of comfortably, you know, kick back on your couch kind of thing? And he says, you know, I want to feel like I'm there, man. I, I was there and I, I know what it felt like to be there. So I want to feel like I was there. So what we did is we took time to really start pushing, pushing on those lights, especially that background light. And he was concerned, um, you know, or one of his concerns was, you know, I don't want to lose detail in the face. I said, okay, and that's, you know, we've got to be, she's the show, she's the artist. We got to make sure we see her. So I said, okay, let's, let's try that. Let's, let's work on that. So we took one shot where it was just, the LEDs were fully lit. Um, and we brought it up and we were pushing, pushing, pushing. And I said, well, let me try something for you. And I pushed it all the way up to 4,000 nits. I mean, those, those lights were just, blasting out onto the pulsar and and i said uh you know and, and he's, he's like i that looks tremendous he goes that that's starting to make me feel like it was there so we take that piece of content right and we, we finish it and i show that content a lot um and when i showed that content to various people um you know for demonstrations inside and that that's blasting and you got her sitting in front of it i asked him can you hey can you see her face and everybody always shakes their head yes we can see it. i said can you see the detail in her skin Always shakes her head yes. And I said, so at four, that's a 4,000 nit light. And yet inside that 4,000 nit backlight, you can see the details on that person's face on the skin. So your eye is not blown out. Your eye, your eye and your brain work that out and they work out how to figure out what's important to your eye and, and your eye and your brain figures that stuff out. So if someone just, <laughs> you know, says, Oh, you're going to need sunglasses. I just like saying, you know what, you don't, you don't know how this thing works. You're just making this up. You're just saying stuff. Um, and it's, you have these real authentic interactions with light. Um, and that's part of the experience of doing HDR and, and watching HDR is that authentic experience with light. That's what I find. I, I find sort of just watching two different images, the SDR version and the HDR version, I'm definitely more drawn into, my eye has to work more and pay attention more, and it wants to soak in all this great information in the Dolby Vision version, where the SDR one, everything looks very one-dimensional and kind of just all sits there, right? It's a compromise. You know, Rick said it. It's a compromise all the way through. When you're compromising um, what was really there, to put it into this hundred nit box, um, that's what SDR has always been. Um, and it's wonderful. We tell wonderful stories at a hundred nits. I'm not putting that down, but when you've got a capture that's, you know, 14 stops plus, 
and you're bringing that image down into a seven and a half at you know seven and a half uh, stop uh, image, um, you're you're throwing half the image away and you're compromising those ratios. And so, you know, if talk about skies, you know, to get bright blue skies and 100 nits, you get seven nits of blue. Out of 100 nits, you get seven nits of pure blue. This is an additive color space, right? Television's an additive color space, and so you're not going to get a deep saturated bright sky you can get a deep saturated sky but it's going to be at you know not very very bright um so if you want a bright sky you're going to have a desaturated sky you know it adds up rgb add up to white so the brighter you go from seven nits well if you go you know that's that's it everything above that you're desaturating now if you want to look at hdr and 10,000 nits on a on a 10,000 nit system you've got 300 nits of pure blue 300 so three times the the 100 nit uh, 709, you get 300 nits of pure blue. So in HDR, you can have really deep saturated colors. That's not just goes for blue. It goes for red, green, and blue, right? You've got really deep saturated colors um, to really bring uh, content to life. Greg, tell us, tell us most what sort of, since your eyes have been open, what frustrates you about the SDR Rec 709 world? Well, here's, here's the thing. I, I feel as though I've been very fortunate uh, that in the last, you know, six years, uh, I've done very little SDR first color correction. <laughs> so, so what I feel is the other side of that coin. When I am working on the derived SDR based on the HDR grade I've done, I am delighted by what is available there. So as Shane says, you know, those deep blue skies are still deep blue, even though they you know, they may be approaching 100% luminance level with 709. Um, but I wanted to respond to something that Shane said earlier, but when you had said to Lou Levinson, do you want to feel like you're sitting on the couch watching this concert on your TV, or do you want to feel like you're there? Often we're asked by people, how do you figure out where to put the image? And I began early on as I, you know, because often we were starting with something that had done been done as a SDR grade. And we're asked now to do the HDR Dolby Vision version. And I would think to myself, how much bright, how bright should this be? How, how far should I take this? And I would often just say, well, imagine I'm there at that location or I'm on that set. Uh, you know, I'm on that, you know, staircase outside a, you know, a fire escape on a nighttime, whatever. And I would just say, how would I expect it to look if I was there? And that was when I would begin to play with opening up shadows or bringing up highlights and, you know, letting spectral highlights go quite bright or whatever. And when it felt natural in that way, that's when I felt I was getting, you know, in the ballpark, in the right place. Cool. I think we'll dive deeper into the topics of where where and how you guys do what you do, maybe in the in the next podcast. But that's a, it's definitely a good point. Let's um, transition a little bit to... Uh, sort of talk about the technical pieces of Dolby Vision. And we'll start, um, since we've been talking mostly about home, maybe you guys could just explain in layman's terms, as if if your director or your producers were walking in, what was the reason for Dolby Vision dynamic metadata? Why was that invented? And uh, what's the need for it? Maybe you could take us through that. Rick, I'll, I'll have you go first. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the dynamic metadata uh, 
looks at uh, and and you we generally do this shot by shot rather than frame by frame um, but you'll look at at all of the luminance values within a shot and optimize that so it's really an optimization of, of the image to uh, to utilize the, the uh, dynamic range that's in that image uh, to its fullest extent. And a lot of colorists think that um, they have to grade that out. It's like they, so what they really want is static metadata. And if, and if you, you know, it's, it's kind of um, uh, probably more a psychological thing than it is an actual thing. Dynamic metadata won't change uh, things drastically shot to shot. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you have something like uh, uh, a big bright window behind somebody, mm -hmm. uh, it will it will necessarily make uh, certain things darker uh, that you probably don't want dark like the face. So um, the solution is to do something like take the take the uh, analysis from the two shot, put it on the close up, and then it falls right in. So. But the purpose really was to help um, translate these images that you're creating to all the different TVs out there on the market, right? And and you're sort of helping guide that shot-by-shot -shot metadata and confirming how the mapping will occur. Right. And and you're you're doing it on a graded image, right? So it's not like you're you're uh, using it on raw data and you have to uh, grade it as such. With dynamic metadata, because mm -hmm. that that would be completely ridiculous. Yeah. So you've got a graded image, and it has a look, and and the dynamic metadata uh, uh, looks at all those images, and it, you know, it flows along. Greg, tell tell us your thoughts about why the Dolby Vision dynamic metadata is important, and sort of your your feelings about it. Sure. So, you know, for years we were all grading to a standardized professional grading monitor. Uh, the spec for it in terms of brightness and contrast and how much color and everything was, was established and it, everyone in SDR. met that. Yeah, in SDR. And, and television manufacturers were all trying to build TVs that fell close to or within that spec, right? Now, you would do a session in a color grading suite and I have to remind everybody this isn't going to look exactly the same anywhere else, except another post house that has this same monitor that's been calibrated. Well, that became the Wild West when we got to HDR and TV manufacturers were making TVs with all different varying brightness levels and capabilities. Uh, and so the question was, how do we, you know, maintain that artistic integrity of the, of the approved color grade that's been done in, uh, in HDR? Uh, and have the best representation of that in all these different devices with all their range of capability of brightness. Um, so, you know, the, the analysis, the Dolby Vision analysis of the image, the remapping to 70900 nits, and then any trims or adjustments that colorists want to do uh, to refine that um, is then used to reproduce the best image on either an SDR monitor or an HDR TV that, uh, you know, has 300 nits, 600 nits, whatever the maximum brightness they can achieve. Um, so that's its purpose. And, and it was meant to try to preserve the artistic creative intent on all displays. 
You know, dynamic metadata is meant to give you control. It's it's there to help you take a 4,000-nit or even a 1,000-nit um, mastered set of images and map them down to 100 nits, and then best to be able to tell that story at that at 100 nits. So, you know, there's no expectation in my mind that the 1,000-nit or even the 4,000-nit um, mastered images are going to be identical to the 100-nit uh, image that you've created, uh, unless you've graded the whole 4,000 nit, you know, master uh, image down to 100 nits, and it's you know a one to one. So the question comes up. The question comes up of how do you best tell that story um, at 100 nits, um, and that's what the metadata is there for. The dynamic metadata is there for. Um, so one set of LUTs to map, or one set of metadata to map from 4,000 nits or 1,000 nits down to 100, um, and you've got, you know, shot to shot, you've got varying uh, degrees of uh, luminance and color and saturation, one set of LUTs is not going to do it. One set of metadata is not going to do it. Ima imagine if you're really using the 1,000 or the 4,000 nit um, uh, HDR to tell stories, to pull the eye around, to to get engaged with authentic interactions with light, and it's, that's not going to happen the same way at 100 nits as it does at 4,000. So how do you take that story and map it down? The director has a choice there, right? They have a choice at that point because they're the ones looking at both images, the 100 nit and the 4,000. People at home aren't looking at both sides of that. They're they see one re representation of it, and our job as storytellers is to give them that story at that performance level and make sure they have that engaging experience. And those, and those things that you can engage with, those tools that you can engage with and use as a storyteller are different at 4,000 nits, 1,000 nits, and 100 nits. The dynamic metadata is there to help you balance those things and best tell that story at the various performance tiers. Yeah, I love that you brought up the idea of LUTs. You really couldn't do it with LUTs. And the Dolby Vision Dynamic tool set, that we'll, we'll dive into that in the next episode, but really they give you these really usable controls that allow you to manipulate and bend that dynamic metadata and really maintain the look that you want across a wide variety of devices, right? You're right. It's the best thing that you can do and use to tell the story at these different performance tiers. I don't want to say maintain a look. I, I I like to describe it as, at this performance tier, how do I tell this story utilizing all the tools and the capabilities I can at this level? Um, at 4,000 nits, you're going to have a certain level of, of tools and, and certain uh, sets of tools that you can use to interact with the audience. At 1,000 nits, those are going to be slightly different. There's less luminance. There's less color. Um, there's less interactive. Uh, um, your eye has to do uh, less things as you go from dark to light, those, those kind of interactions and some of the other interactions that you get uh, from the eye, physical interactions, movements, that kind of thing. Uh, and how do you best tell that story and get that impact um, at at 100 nits? And how do you do that? How do you map that down? Yeah. Just to add to that, early on, obviously, we didn't have this system, right? We, we uh, tested almost everything with uh, static LUTs. And, and the, what you got back 
was not exactly what you wanted when you tried to map down to Rec 709 or or to 600 uh, PQ. The uh, the decision was made to do dynamic metadata uh, just because a static LUT doesn't uh, give you the best image possible. You know, we, we focus a lot on the, really the home deliverables creation for, for home televisions and mobile phones and such. Let's just shift a little bit and talk about uh, the Dolby cinema experience and really the Dolby Vision projector and creating content. Now, you guys uh, all have experience in that realm as, as well. What makes the cinema uh, experience similar and different? Rick, I'll, I'll throw it to you first. Well, obviously, um, you've got the same uh, million to one contrast ratio that, that, uh, that um, you know, and what is 19 stops that you have with the Pulsar, but it's only 108 nits. And you'd think that that would be a problem, but, um, but it's not. Uh, the, on a large projected image like that, and, and I think that we're talking about 65 feet for our, uh, our, most of our Dolby cinemas, uh, it looks absolutely amazing. Uh, again, it's, it's the contrast and not, not the brightness, but uh, the detail and, and particularly, uh, you know, we were talking about 3D earlier uh, in terms of being a gimmick. When you look at, at uh, Dolby Vision 3D, which is uh, uh, 48 nits per eye, uh, it, it looks absolutely amazing, too. It's, it's a mm. completely different experience from, yeah. uh, from the DCI experience. So 108 nits, and it, it's because it's a very, very dark room, you still have that ability to go down into the lower nit values like Greg was talking about on his earlier show. Um, Greg, I'll kick it to you. Um, talk a little bit about how the laser primaries and the technology um, gives you an extended color gamut, a really wide color gamut that's capable for amazing things with animation, right? Yeah, I think uh, in animation... You know, people tend to really push colors and do some really extreme kind of hues and uh, make it pretty spectacular looking. And uh, on the uh, on the Dolby projector, it's just extraordinary. Uh, I know uh, Rick has, has done some work with uh, with uh, Pixar, haven't you, Rick? Uh, or or uh, DreamWorks? Who is it? You? I I did uh, work with um, Warner Brothers. Uh, we did a wide color gamut version of of uh, Lego Batman, which was stunning. Yeah. Some amazing orange and green skies for sure. <laughs> That's And then I, I had the pleasure of working on the Dolby cinema version of uh, Trolls 2, which uh, kind of famously did not make it to the, to the cinema because we had the, the lockdown. <laughs> COVID-19 baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I can tell you, it looks wonderful. It looks All brilliant right. on that projector. And uh, Shane, tell us how it's different than the home version in that, you you don't quote unquote need dynamic metadata, right? Uh, no, you don't need dynamic data because you're actually grading right on the projector itself, and the projector is pushing the image right to the screen, and so you're really getting a one to one experience uh, from the projector to the to the viewing experience. Um, so what the colorists and the and the producers and the directors and whoever's in control of that image are seeing in that in the theater, that's what the audience gets to experience. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, you know, if, if you were to start with, say, a Dolby cinema version, um, does that project then translate to, to go start the Dolby Vision home version, say for, for, uh, you know, a thousand nits or 4,000 nits? It can. Hmm. I mean, I, I did that with Pan. Pan was done um, in London, and I ended up doing the, uh, the video part of it. And uh, it, uh, it translates really easily, actually, when you're in PQ. It's easy to scale to the different uh, luminance uh, that the Pulsar provides. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a matter of sort of shifting where that dynamic range sits for the for the the playback device, right? Yeah, and not necessarily just shifting. It's not just shifting. It's about also recurving that into the the dynamic. The uh, it's not just a shift. It's not just a lift. You know, you actually have the range and the and the handles, if you will, the scale to to then place that in, into the EOTF, bend that EOTF to then give the best representation um, in a home display. Great. That's that's why they pay you guys to be the colorists and me just to be the evangelist. <laughs> um, so I, maybe just as we finish up, um, you guys could talk about, you know, a lot of your day to day work um, that you do now. You know, as you know, as the ecosystem has been more enabled, there's more post houses and colorists. You guys in the early days, you were doing some of these titles to help kickstart the ecosystem. Tell us more about your daily work now in designing the algorithms and, you know, the integration into color correctors and the, and the testing, the things that you do. Um, if you could just give us a, what is your, what is your day, a day in a life of Rick, Shane and Greg look like? Well, actually that, that began even during our race to 100 titles, uh, because what we found was every now and then you'd have a shot that you would run the analysis on. And no matter what you did with the trims, you couldn't get the image you wanted in the Drive 709. And we would immediately grab a still of any of those shots. We called them the outliers. Uh, and uh, Rick began to build a library of those uh, that we then could work with the Adobe engineers to say, here's where, these are shots where the analysis and the trims don't work. You know, what, what can we do to improve that? You know, Rick, you could talk more about that. That's a great point. So it, you guys look at thousands and thousands of different images, right, Rick? Yes. And, and um, you know, it, it never ends. There's always something that's going to trip up a system. And so, um, you know, we went from uh, version 2.9 to uh, version uh, 4.0. And a lot of that was uh, looking at these outliers and, and understanding uh, where things uh, needed to be improved. And that's and so that's, um, you know, every day for us. That's great. So it's really, you know, you guys spend a lot of time with colorists and other people looking at their images and maybe trying to help them through the challenges that they're finding and, and, and ways to go. So that's great. Shane, how about you? What, what's a lot of the research work that, you know, you can't talk about the undercover secret stuff, but, you know, what, what's your day like? So I work really closely with the uh, the ABC, uh, so the the advanced uh, visual science team, um, and the advanced visual science team are really testing algorithms. They're testing. Um, they also have uh, where we get partner products in, so monitors, that type of thing. And we've even back in the day we were testing our own monitors, and we had run those through the gauntlet of 
you know, visual stimulus, visual acuity and, and visual tests, also just performance tests. And so my day could could start off with, you know, running test patterns on monitors to see where they fall apart or where they're not, you know, where the where the algorithm isn't quite working. Then it goes to a grading in the afternoon so that we can push a certain aspect of, of what HDR does and really pushing those. Then it can go to going and taking a, a visual test by one of the neuroscientists where, which I love to break their tests because apparently I have pretty good color vision and, you know, I like to break their bell curves. Um, and also then getting pulled into, um, you know, questions about, would this tool work? You know, yeah, they've got the math, but then they want to put it inside a color corrector. And it's like, no, no one will ever use that tool. Like, that's not, no. If you thought about it like this, maybe we might use it. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're being used to kind of bridge the technical and the creative communities. And because we've got a very vast experience of grading content and having technical conversations, it allows us to then kind of interpret and uh, you know, go back and forth and maybe make some suggestions or at least give some critical thinking points to the scientists and the community. You know, and I think that's a great place to end really is that, you know, having you guys in-house um, essentially making the tools better, making the algorithms better, um, making the workflow easier to use and, uh, and help really answer it from the, the creative uh, control side of things, I think is just a fantastic uh, benefit for Dolby and, and ultimately the community. So I'll, uh, I think we should dive in next time into deeper conversations about some of the things that you've learned using the tools and the workflow. So stay tuned for part two coming soon to a theater near you. Um, Rick, Greg, uh, Shane, Glenn, come on. It was pretty cool, right? Video guys, we're, we can geek out too, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, Tom, thanks for hosting this session. And uh, and everybody, thanks for tuning in. This has been a really interesting conversation about Dolby Vision. And as Tom said, uh, we hope that it's going to be the start of a series of conversations, not only internally about the, the tools and the technology, but also with colorists and uh, uh, hopefully with some uh, uh, filmmakers and artists who are using the technology to tell their stories. And and uh, let them tell you a little bit about uh, what they're doing from a creative standpoint. So thanks everybody for uh, tuning in. This is Glenn Kaiser uh, from the Dolby Institute signing off. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.